so anyway, here's what I want to start out, though, with. Thursday night into Friday morning, and if you're on our Tuesday night group chat, you've seen some of this that I kind of shared a little bit. But I felt the Lord. So back in May, some of y'all may not remember this, but back in May, excuse me, the Lord whispered, uh, we're about to go through a mass exodus. Does, does anybody remember that? Scared the living Jesus out of me. And um, because we've been through that. I, I, y'all remember me back then. I was like, Lord, no thanks. Like, I don't want that word. That's for somebody else. We're not going to do that. And, um, and then the Lord was like, no, I'm talking about mass freedom. And, um, and so I made the assumption that that didn't mean what I thought it meant. And I think I was wrong. I think it meant more than what I thought it meant, but it included what I thought it meant. And, um, and so anyway, so we've been over the past couple of months, we have been in a season of leaving slavery, if you will. Slavery to what? I believe Adam, old identity, old junk, religion. But in the process of that, there has been um, just some thinking or some, some things that have not made it through that, and that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Like there's been some old mindsets, there's been some... Um, you know, people who are called to do other things, different things like that, that the Lord has really just been refining us through this season. But he's been refining us for what I believe we're walking into right now. So Thursday night into Friday morning, I, uh, I felt the Lord whisper, the exodus is over. It's time to enter into what I promised both you and your ancestors. And I had two kickbacks for that. Number one, I said, Lord, it's not been long enough, so maybe this is wrong. And the Lord corrected me and said, they were never supposed to be in the wilderness 40 years. The Israelites were never called to be in the wilderness 40 years. They were called to be in the wilderness nine days. It's a nine-day journey from Egypt to Canaan. Nine days. Um, let's say a week, give or take. So they were designed to be in the wilderness for a week. And do you remember what happened? So here's the story. I'm not teaching on this today yet. But here's the story. Uh, they leave Egypt three days, I believe. Don't quote me on that because it's been a while. But three days into the trip, they get out. They start being thirsty, right? Now, remember, they just saw the Lord do all the plagues, part the Red Sea. I mean, just insane miracles. Uh, pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. Like, you know, just like all this crazy stuff. They get thirsty, and they start saying, maybe we should go back to eat it. We're thirsty. The Lord's just brought us out here to die. You know, all stuff. And even if you read that, you're like, why on earth would he spend all that effort on the plagues, on the sea, all that stuff, if he just wanted to kill you? He could just kill you in Egypt. You know what I'm saying? So they start kicking back. And the Lord uses that wilderness to test, like I taught last week, their faith. Not to show them what they lacked, but to show them what they had that they thought that they lacked. They wanted to go back to Egypt because there was water there. The Lord was trying to prove to them that there was water in the wilderness. They just didn't see it, right? So he calls water out of a rock, then leads them to springs. They get to springs. You read the Old Testament, especially Exodus. They get to springs. The water is sour. Anybody remember this story? And, uh, and so they start grumbling and complaining. They get hungry. They grumble and complain. The Lord sends manna. So even that, he's, he's, they're saying, let's go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. We were slaves. We were beat. They were beating us. But at least we had food. And the Lord says, no, you have food here if you'll wake up and see it. And they wake up the next morning, there's manna. You know what I'm saying? So, so the wilderness is the Lord trying to prove to them who he is, 
rather than the slavery mentality that they have grown up in that they are actually more comfortable with. So in every, so if, if they were in their right minds, when they get out into the wilderness, we're thirsty. Moses, can you go ask the Lord to give us water? That's what should have happened. Instead, they get in the wilderness, they get thirsty, and they say, let's go back to slavery because at least we had water. And that, that's, I believe, a lot, of, a lot of what we do today is when the Lord, um, amen, <laughs> scared me to death. I thought the Lord was singing. Okay, so <laughs> I was supposed to stop. Um, but when, when, when we get into this, this, this wilderness, I call it wilderness because that was the wilderness. It was designed to take them from slavery and rewild them again. So they're in the wilderness, and the same thing happens to us when the Lord brings us into a proverbial wilderness. And that's what he's been doing this past summer is he's brought us into a place. And Olivia, what you shared Tuesday night about discipline is I think maybe you may not even know, have known this, the most prophetic thing that's been said all summer. And, and it was just a really simple word. But basically, again, not to steal from Olivia, maybe you should preach today. My Lord, I'm just quoting you the whole day. But what she said was is that in the summer, typically it's a time where we allow ourselves to get undisciplined and lazy and, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and, she felt like in prayer, the Lord really showed her, this is a time for us to crank up our discipline. And again, not talking about like, do this, two plus two equals four, and you get presents. That's not what we're talking about. But discipline as in like, like not growing apathetic towards this. You know what I'm saying? So when you get in the wilderness, that, that is the, the, the tendency. And so they get all the way to the promised land, to Canaan. They send spies in. I, I do not believe... I do not believe that Moses was ever supposed to send spies in to see if they could take the land. I think, if you read the text, that the Lord told Moses to send them in so that the Lord could show them the path to take into the land. Moses sends them in the land, and they're going in thinking, let's go see if we can actually do this. And that's not why they were there. So they weren't there to peer into the promised land to see, like, let's see if we can take these guys. They were there to say, we're going to take these guys. Where do we start? You know what I'm saying? So they come back. They come back with fruit so big that two people have to carry it. So you talk about, like, like think about a watermelon you get at the, at the store. That thing's pretty heavy. This fruit is so big and heavy, multiple people have to carry this thing. Okay? So that they bring it back, and they say, it's exactly what the Lord said, Everything he told us about the land is right. It's a land flow of milk and honey. There's cities there. There's uh, uh, provision there. There's fruit so big that we have multiple people that have to carry it. But, but there's giants in the land. As if the Lord didn't know there were giants in the land. You know what I'm saying? So they start spreading. Lord, this is, if, if you let he who has an ear hear what I'm talking about right now, because there's so much on the depth. But, they start going in the camp and spreading word to all the people behind the leaders' backs saying, hey, we can't do this. Moses lost his mind. We should go back to Egypt. These guys, there's no way we can take these guys. And they spread it like a virus everywhere until there's Joshua and there's Caleb and then there's Moses and then the millions of other Israelites are saying, we are not doing this to the point that they were going to stone the ones that said we could do this and trust in the Lord. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt 
so that the Lord could give them the land that he promised Abram all this time before. They saw all these miracles. They saw water flow out of a rock. They saw every, all, these, these lands conquered by the Lord on their behalf. They see this whole thing. They get right up to the edge of what they were designed for. An entire generation was designed for, and they freak out because of some giants. I mean, so they spread this news. They go to stone Joshua and Caleb because these guys are lost their ever love. Trust in the Lord. You know what I'm saying? And the Lord turns them around and takes them straight back into the wilderness, saying, you did not learn here what you were designed to learn. So you're going to have to wonder in the wilderness until you learn it. Not because I'm mad, but because I love you. So an entire generation dies not receiving what the Lord promised them because when they got right on the edge of what they were designed for, they got scared because it didn't look like what they thought it was going to look like. The land was great, but there was giants. The wilderness, the wilderness was a place for them to get out of the slavery mentality. It was for them to solidify their identity. Canaan, and the reason the giants were there, I believe, was a place where the Lord was going to flip the script and where one place they learned their identity in the promised land they were about to see his. And at that point, they kick back. So an entire generation dies because they're unwilling to face the giants in the land. Now, I've said this for years. I can't prove this, but you can't prove it otherwise either. So I wonder, because you remember when Joshua goes, and I'm, I think I'm going to read this. I think I'm going to read this because my sermon today is not very long. So, um, And that's legit. That's legit. I normally have like 10 pages. Today I got five. So um, when Joshua goes into the land, do you remember what happens? He sees a man standing there, a warrior, and he goes up to him and he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he says, neither. He says, neither. And then he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I've just arrived. In other words, Joshua saying, are you for us or for them? The angel, who I believe is Jesus, many other scholars would also agree. The angel is standing there saying, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, are you on my side? This is what he says. All right, Joshua says, are you for us or are you for them? He's, for them. He says, nope, I'm not for either, but are you for me? And Joshua hits the ground and said, and he hears the word, you are on holy ground. Where's that? Moses, okay? So Joshua becomes the one that leads the Israelites into the promised land and a generation after that, by the way, didn't know slavery. The generation that doubted grew up in slavery. The next generation, do you know where they grew up? The wilderness. So here's what the Lord's saying to us. He said, we've left Egypt. We're on, the, we're on the brink of what the Lord has promised us, which I believe is September. I don't know why. I just, I'm holding on to that. But we're on the edge of it, and we're peering into the land. And if we're not careful, we'll start to let lies We'll start to let the virus of what's been said behind everybody's back, you know, whatever you want to say. We'll start letting what has been said to us in the past. We'll start letting our actual past. We'll start letting the fact that we haven't let go of slavery yet 
start whispering in our ears and say, there's no way we can do that. There's no way we can make it in there. There's no way that something this small can make any kind of difference in the kingdom. There's, I mean, you fill in the blank. You know what I'm saying? And here, this is the test because I believe what we're going into is a land flowing with everything that we've ever begged for. Except this time we're not going to get it by way of begging. I mean, so while we're here, I'm just going to encourage you today. And I said this in worship. You, you are, just to be clear, going to be tempted over the next little bit to short-circuit the process and slide back into what is comfortable. If that hasn't happened already, it will. Okay? And when that happens, you can say yes to it, and you can keep wandering in the wilderness until a generation comes up that's willing to say yes, or you can say yes. Because I wrote this in my book coming out in September, but I wrote this, that Yahweh is okay if it takes a thousand generations, he's okay waiting for the generation that'll say yes. He is not in a hurry. He won't give it to a generation that can't handle it. He will not. We've seen that. He won't give it to a generation that can't handle it, that refuses to handle it, or won't let go of slavery. So he'll wait thousands of years, if that's what it takes, for a generation to rise up, born in the wilderness, to say, why not? Let's do it. But we could be, and we're called to be that generation. The Israelites, the first generation, was called to be that. So think of it this way. They grew up in slavery, but because they grew up in slavery, they never let go of the slavery, and that kept them from the promised land. What if they had said yes and gone into the promised land? Now the next generation that grew up in the wilderness would have been a generation that grew up in the promised land. So as much as they did growing up in the wilderness how much more could they have seen had they grown up in the land of milk and honey? And that, that's the decision we're going to have to make right now, today, in our lives, this summer, before we go into the fall, when COVID's, now that COVID's over, and I'm speaking that prophetically, because um, it ain't coming back. Dear Lord above, it ain't coming back. Um, but now that we're through this whole season, the Lord gave us the blessing of a year to get everything in order. Last year, everything was shut down. And if we didn't take advantage of that, that's on us. But he gave us a whole year to refocus, recalibrate. And here's what happened is a lot of people in that year, instead of leveraging a year of rest, we wasted a year of rest. And now people are scrambling because they were supposed to be seated in that season and they never let themselves get seated and rooted in that season. That's what we're seeing. But the Lord's given us an opportunity that over the next month or two, until he starts to just drip new wine, because I think that's what's happening. Until he starts to do that, he's giving us an opportunity to get our wineskin in order to receive it. Because what does he say? If he pours out new wine on an old wineskin, it will destroy it. So our job right now is to submit to the process of becoming a new wineskin. Y'all with me? Man, let me just read this. Joshua goes into the promised land. This is what the Lord says. Let me just, just read it for you. The Lord says this to Joshua. Joshua 1, this is in the Passion Translation. None of y'all have this one because it just came out. So y'all just listen to it. It says, And after Moses, which by the way, Deuteronomy, all the way to 2 Kings, with the exception of Ruth, all start with and. So it's just one continued story. Really cool in the Hebrew. But after Moses, Yahweh's servant died, Yahweh spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' faithful assistant, and said, My servant Moses is dead. Now get up, 
prepared across the Jordan River, you and all the people, lead them into the land that I am giving to the Israelites. Every part of the land where you march, I will give you, as I promised Moses. Your borders will extend from the southern desert to the northern mountains of Lebanon, from the great river Euphrates in the east to the Mediterranean in the west, including all the land of the Hittites, Joshua, now I want you to hear this, Joshua, no one will be able to defeat you for the rest of your life. I will be with you as I was with Moses, and I will never fail you nor abandon you. You must be strong and brave or courageous, some of your say. You will lead the people to acquire and apportion the land that I promised their ancestors I would give them. You must, listen to this, you must remain strong and courageous. Be faithful to obey all the teaching that my servant Moses commanded you to follow. Do not deviate from him to the right or to the left so that you will have overwhelming success in everything you undertake. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs says, without clear prophetic revelation or vision, the people quickly wander astray. Y'all, I taught, I taught that for weeks last year. But where there's no clear prophetic vision, in other words, where there's no, this is what's ahead. That's what we're talking about right now. Where there's no kind of vision for what the Lord is doing, people quickly start scattering astray. So in the church, where there is no, and this is why it's dangerous that we have so uh, demolished the prophetic in the church. Dangerous. We've said the prophetic's not for today and wonder why people are scattering. It's because where there's no clear prophetic vision, the other translation is where there's no clear prophetic seer, a prophetic person. People quickly wander astray. So what the Lord is doing, and he tells Joshua, is he says, you are not to deviate from the right or the left so that you will have overwhelming success in everything you undertake. Deviate from what? The prophetic words I spoke to Moses. Okay, verse 8, and then I'm going to move on. Recite this scroll of the law constantly. Contemplate it day and night, and be careful to follow every word it contains. Then you will have and enjoy incredible prosperity and success. I repeat, third time, be strong and brave or courageous. Do not yield to fear or be discouraged, for I am Yahweh your God, and I will be with you wherever you go. I am Yahweh your God, and I will be with you wherever you go. He tells them that the strength to be strong and courageous relies on two things, not deviating from the prophetic word, right or to the left, number one, and number two, contemplating the law. He says here, for us, that would be the word of the Lord. You could say the Bible, you could say the New Testament, you could say the words of Jesus, but the word of God, contemplating it day and night to be careful to follow every word it contains. For us, it's the love thing that we've been talking about. God is love. That's a revelation that comes after Jesus in the incarnation of Jesus when Jesus makes the announcement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In that moment, everything about the law shifts to understanding what the law was about, which was the word, Jesus, made flesh. And what Jesus is about is proving to us that God is love. And that God, First John says, is light that not a shred of darkness is found in I mean, so, so every, this is why we repeat things over and over and over, because I know I've been talking about identity, and I've been talking about who God is for four years, four and a half years. I know. And the reason is, is because as long as we don't deviate from that, we'll see what no eye has seen. 
I would love to sit here and talk about all the different, you know, actually, no, I wouldn't love that, but talk about grace and hope and love and joy, and here's how you can do this, and here's how you have peace, and here's how you, but all of that is found within the identity of who Jesus is and who we are. If you know who you are, you have peace. If you know who you are, you have joy. If you know who you are, you have hope. So I could teach you how to have joy and how to have hope and how to do that and how to pray for people and how to have the gifts of the Spirit and how to speak in tongues. I could teach you all that stuff, or I could teach you who you are, and you'll receive all of that. So one of those is way easier for me, way easier for you, and way easier for him because he won't give you that stuff if you work to achieve it anyway. All right, so I'm going to... kind of piggyback off of that and kind of transition to what I want to say today. But I'm telling you, y'all, this discipline thing, and I'm, I might get you to just share that one day so coming up, maybe Tuesday night again, but like is massive. Like I took that word and have like really applied it to my life this week because I believe it's that important. So that we, we've got to turn our, our, our discipline up. That could be tithing. I know summer's, summer is typically a time where we just like let tithing just slack. And then we get into the fall and wonder why nothing's clicking. And it's not because it's a workspace thing, but it's because the Lord said he'll use the same measure that you have used to measure it back to you. Right? You know what I'm saying? So if we're not using any kind of measure, we can't question why the Lord doesn't have a measurement to use towards us. Amen. All right. Here we go. Uh, Let me start with reading some stuff that I've been writing, and then we're actually going to go to Ephesians 1, which has become amazing for me this week. So Ephesians 1, it's always been, but I just have lived there this week, and First John. Um, so let me read some stuff I've been writing, and then I'll find y'all in Ephesians 1. In Exodus 3, Moses has a burning bush encounter with Yahweh. In verse 13, Moses asks God what he should tell the Israelites if they ask him who sent him. In verse 14, God gives Moses one of the most incredible revelations in history. And by the way, I know we haven't passed the bucket yet. We're going to do that at the end, so I didn't forget that. But y'all remind me if I do forget it. In verse 14, God gives Moses one of the most incredible revelations in history, and he tells him, you tell them, I am who I am, sent you. And then later he reiterates, I am is the one who sent you. Now, that's very, we've heard that if you've been in church at any point in time, you've heard that. Scholars have gone back and forth on what this means. Many have valid points, and some of all of the points is probably correct. However, I want to focus on or, or offer a perspective that I believe will help us understand what it means to bear the image of God. Remember what we've been talking about. Love, light, and darkness is the three main things we've been talking about. Darkness, ontologically, does not exist. Okay? We've been talking about that. Just to review, darkness does not exist. It has no waveform. It has no life. It doesn't exist. It's a lie. Darkness is a lie. Therefore, to be in the dark is to be in a lie, particularly as it relates to who we are or who he is. So, if I said, man, it's dark in here. It's not dark. There's no light in the room. And you would say that's the same thing, and maybe it is the same thing. But darkness on a scientific, ontological scale does not exist. Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is a measure of light. So if you turn the lights down low enough, all of us will say it's dark in here. But it's not because darkness has filled the room. It's because we've turned the lights down. Okay, So if the world is dark, it's probably because those who are called to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden have turned their lights down. 
So what, let me, I'm going to read this before I find you in Ephesians 1. What does 1 John 5 through 7 say? We've, we read this, I think it was last week, but just to reiterate, here's what it says. 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it says this. This is the life-giving message that we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears. John is saying, this is the gospel we heard Jesus preach. Okay, We now repeat his words to you. Here it is. God is pure light, and you'll never find a trace of darkness in him, period. If we claim to share life with him, but keep walking in the darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Why? Because darkness doesn't exist. So if we keep walking in the darkness, we're fooling ourselves because we're called to live in the light that does exist. Okay. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with not just him, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. So this is what John says. He says, the message, the gospel that we have heard is this. God is light. There's no darkness in him. And like I said a few weeks ago, that is not in any of the gospels. So John is giving us revelation to something that even the gospels did not give us insight to. That doesn't mean they withheld it. doesn't mean anything like that. It's because I believe the beloved was given access to see something that maybe, possibly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't see. That doesn't mean make that any less. It does make us align ourselves back to the root, which is how much beloved identity affects every single thing that we see in the kingdom. But John is saying, I'm going to tell you all the message that we've heard, and here it is. God is light. There's no darkness in him. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's huge. You will never find a trace of darkness or lie in him. He's pure light and pure truth. There is no obscurity. That's the other word for darkness here. There's no obscurity or distortion in him. Remember this, okay? God is pure light. You'll never find a trace of darkness in him. The other word is obscurity. So you can say this. God is pure light or pure truth. You'll never find a trace of obscurity or distortion in him. Okay? All the same, same Greek word. So what is it saying? He's saying God is full truth. You'll never find any distorted truth in him. Let's say it like this. God is complete and true identity you'll never find distorted identity in him. Okay, so remember Exodus 3. What does he say? Moses says, when they ask me who sent me, who do I tell them? And God says, here's what you tell them. You tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am is an announcement that God's identity lies solely in what he is, not in what he is not. Who, who do I tell them? You tell them I am. I know who, every single shred of his identity is found in what he knows he is. None of it is found in what he thinks he is not. And I know God can't not be something. I, I know that, okay? But I'm bringing it down to us bearing the image. So y'all just hang with me for a second. Many of us have built our lives on what we are not. We are insecure and fear others' opinions. And I'm speaking to myself right now. Because we are more moved by what we are not being exposed than what we are being recovered. That was a good spot for an amen. That's okay. 
This, this is the essence of religion. It's rules and regulations based on what you are not, rather than fire to burn in who you are. Who are you? You're an image bearer of I am. Okay? You're an image bearer of I am. Now let me look, look at verse 6 one more time. I know I've, I've read this a lot. This is what John says. If we claim to share in the life, or we, if we claim to share life with him, but we keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. If we claim to be living in darkness, John's saying you're living in a lie. Uh, you know, what? Well, hold up. But think about this. Here's what John also says in John 1. He says, in him is life. In him is life. Nothing has existed apart from him that has existed. In him all things exist. Colossians says, through and for him all things exist. All right, so, this is what John's saying. If we claim that we share life with him, who shares life with him? I'll let y'all answer that question on your own. If I answer that question, I'll get a lot of emails this week. So, if we, if we claim that we share life with him, let me say it like this. Anyone who has ever identified in Adam now identifies in him. Salah. If we claim that we share life with him, but keep the second Adam, by the way, but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves, not living in the truth. So, what we see here is that not only is God pure light and there's no shred of darkness in him, if we are in him, in who? The one who is light that there's not a shred of darkness in, but we claim that we're living in darkness, we're living in a lie. Because we're living in him, where no darkness exists. Y'all with me? I know this is a lot, and I'm going to step on this book, so I'm going to move it. I know this is a lot. So if we're in him, now, what that means is now, let's talk about things like identity, let's talk about things like spiritual warfare, let's talk about all these things, and what we have done is we have lived a lie that we are up against some measure of darkness that actually in him does not exist. That's what John says in John 1. He says, he is light, and the darkness has not overcome it, cannot comprehend it. So this is unbelievable. So a lot of us have lived our lives in what we are not, which is a obscurity or a distortion of the light that we are in. So he's saying, if you're living in a place of what you are not, you're living a lie. However, however, if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, which we are in, we share unbroken fellowship with one another. I'm going to try my best to make this connection today in such a short time. If you know who you are, and let me say it like this, if you know I am, now all of a sudden you and I can share unbroken fellowship because there's no lie that could leave your mouth about what I am not that I would start to buy into because I know who I am. Why do, why do relationships break? Because at some point, there's an expectation built up, typically unsaid, and the minute an announcement is made about at the root of it what somebody is not, 
the minute that announcement is made, all trust is broken and the relationship falls apart. This is why churches uh, break apart internally all the time, and then all of a sudden people start talking behind everybody's back, and people start gossiping, and people start clicking. And all, this is why this happens. It's because at some point, let's for example, I say something, you take that to think you know exactly what that means, and then all of a sudden you are breaking relationship based off of something that, by the way, doesn't even exist and is not even real because it's been made up. But, but this, is, like, this is what happens. And John is saying if we could get convinced about who we are because who we're in, then you and I could share unbroken fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continually cleanse us from all sin because you and I are never giving light to that which isn't even real, which is what we are not. Okay. <clears throat> if we continue to hold on to or maybe being held on to by what we are not, we'll spend our days trying to become what we've actually always been. We'll try to, for example, work to be approved by others. Or let me say it like this. We'll try to, for example, work to be approved by other I am notters rather than rest in the light of being approved of before you were born. I'm about to read this. What could we be and do for the kingdom if we were seated or rooted fully in what we are? That is to bear the image. It's confidence in who and what we are, unshaken and undeterred by what we have done. I'm just going to assume that everybody's quietness is good. Okay, this is truly, truly what it means to live in faith. This is it. You, talk, you want to talk about in faith? This is what this is. That we have built our ways of thinking typically on impoverished identity. In the past, we have built our ways and our thinking on impoverished identity. It should be no surprise that every kingdom principle and virtue that we teach is works and I am not based. So, so for example... If you pray over something or you ask the Lord for something and it doesn't come to pass, typically you might hear something like this. Man, if you just had enough faith. Right? I mean, and so what we're not, essentially what we're saying is if you did this and you did this and you had more of this, then you would get this. Like our faith, like our belief could twist the arm of God. I, I, it is, let, me, let me help you. It's arrogant to think you could have enough faith for God to respond. It's arrogant it's a really, really terrible view of God. It's a really, really terrible view of you because you think you're not good enough to receive, so you've got to work your way into convincing him you're good enough to receive. Uh, is, I mean, on every single level of hermeneutics and understanding the Bible, that thinking is wrong, yet that's what we have built, that type of thinking, our whole religious system around. Right? You're saved if you, re if you repeat the sinner's prayer. One problem, the sinner's prayer ain't in the Bible. And I'm not saying it's wrong, because I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I prayed it a million times. I prayed more than ye all. Okay? But, but let's just be clear. The sinner's prayer is not in here. So, but because our religion is based on doing this and this and this, you're in the club. We came up with this formula of repeat after me. And again, that's not bad. It's not wrong. Instead, 
somebody coming into salvation should be more like a wedding vow. For better or worse. <laughs> right? In plenty and in want. I do. That, see, that's the relationship we're in. However, if we do the repeat a prayer thing, the first minute that there seems like there's lack, because there's not, any kind of distorted identity is a lie. But anytime there seems like there's lack, or it seems like you're walking through a storm, or it seems like the Lord hasn't answered your prayer like you want, every single time, we'll just, it's real easy to slide out of it because there was never a commitment. It was just a repeated prayer so we could say 10 people got saved this week. That's all it was. We, we created the sinner's prayer so that we could post on Instagram or post in newspapers or post on TV that we had 1,000 people get saved. None of them got into a covenant. 100% of them got into a country club. I got to stop before I, while I'm ahead. All right. But, I'm t- this, but this is it. This is, I mean, I'm telling you, this is huge. That we were not called into a religion. Jesus isn't religious. They were never called Christians by anybody that had anything to do with God. They were called Christians by the people of Antioch because they looked so different they had to label them as something. But the Lord did not call them Christians. Jesus, let me help you. Jesus was not a Christian. Some people got some people just pressed the X. Bye. You know what I'm saying? See you later. But like, you know, Jesus was not a Christian. Neither was Paul. Neither was the early church. And I'm going to help you. Neither am I. Well, Josh, how could you say that? No, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, but I'm not a part of a religion. I'm a Christian. But like, you know what I'm saying? When I, when I, say, you know, when I say that, here's what I'm saying, is that we have so made this about religion and rules and doing this. You know the question I get the most more than any other thing? What denomination are you guys? None. None. Oh, so you're non-denominational. No, 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 no. None. You know, you know what I'm saying? But, but this, is, this is this thinking. It's like, well, 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 brother, you know, like, y'all got to be, what are you closest to? Here's what we're closest to. God is light, and you'll never find a trace of darkness in him. That's what we're closest to. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all are still hung up on what I said earlier. I just said that for shock effect, y'all. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian. We're Christians. Dear Lord, like, release it. I'm just saying, I'm talking about religion. I'm talking about religion, okay? Dear Lord, all right, all right. Y'all be shocked that Jesus came in here and says some stuff today. It is, whew, it is, crit- y'all, see, here's the thing about being a spiritual father. I know what all y'all are thinking during this message. Okay. But faith is not working up belief to twist God's arm into submission. Faith is so being convinced of who you are that you consequently bear the fruit of an authentic authority that only comes by way of a proper identity and mindset. It's a lot. It is critical that the more Yahweh shows us what is true, the more we allow ourselves to look in the mirror and see I am reflected. Whew. Some, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that in the beginning because y'all, y'all hung up. All right. Dear Lord, this ain't Antioch. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 Verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read this in the NIV. In the NIV. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. And I'm actually going to stop it around verse 4, and then we'll finish it out towards the end. So, very familiar, but I'm going to wait till you hear some of this stuff in the Greek. 
And y'all thought y'all knew your identity before. Wait until you hear some of this. Here we go. Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. Paul says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the holy people in Ephesus. is not in any of the original translations. So I actually have that marked out in my Bible. Um, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. But check this out. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Wait till you see what the Greek says right here. He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. I'll just read the next few verses. He predestined, here you go, predestination, here we go. He predestined us, who is us? Salah. For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." Amazing verse. I'm going to read the last couple since we're already here. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise and, and excuse me, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with in him, excuse me, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Awesome. But check out verse four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. Now, here we go. Verse 4, before the creation, almost all of your Bibles say that. Some say it accurately, a little more accurately. The Greek word there is katabola. Katabola. You ready for, are you all ready for this? I, I read this this week and about fell out in my chair. Here's what it means, okay? So he chose us in him before what? Katabola. You know what katabola means? To fall. It should read, he predetermined us to be in him before the fall, to be holy. The Greek word there means unique, uniquely for him, other than. So to be holy and without stain, face to face, the word kadenopion, it's a long Greek word, means face to face, in agape, preferential love. So, 
He predetermined us to be in him before the fall, to be holy and without stain, face-to-face in preferential love, agape. The word chose is predestined in Greek. In the Greek, it's predestined. And in the Aramaic, it's kind of different. In the Aramaic, it says marked with love. So he marked us in him, or excuse me, he marked us with love in him before the fall. That's what the Aramaic says. The word predestined means predetermined, or you could say pre-solidified. Predestined. So this is why I say all the time, I absolutely believe in predestination. No doubt. I believe that all were predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is the preface to Luke 15 and the parables within. What Paul is saying here is before there was a fall, Father, Son, and Spirit found you in Christ and predetermined your holiness or oneness. This is what Paul is saying. Unreal. So now, what kind of death blow does this do to any thinking that we have earned something? I mean, it's, you know what I'm saying? It is a blow to it. And that's why I say the Christian thing. Antioch marked them as something other than when what they should have done is seen them come alive and say, we're a part of them, let's come alive too. This is what I'm saying. But instead they say, that's the club over there. They're doing their thing and we're going to keep doing our thing. And the Christians separated themselves from the world because we thought we were doing everything right and we're waiting for somebody to come get us. That's what I mean when I said that earlier. Well, we're not, we are in the world We're not of the world, but we're in the world. And even the phrase of of the world means we're not not moved by what's coming in from the world. We're moving the world by what's coming out of us. That's what he's saying there. In the world, but you're not of the world. You're in the world, and the world is conforming to the image of what you carry within you in the world. That's what Paul says in Romans 8 when he says, All creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for the manifestation of what? Jesus? the sons and daughters of God. So Jesus's birth, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension gave us access to be sons and daughters of God. That creation was standing on tiptoe. We were standing on tiptoe waiting to be redeemed in Christ. Creation standing on tiptoe waiting to be redeemed in you and I. What caused creation to fall? I'm going to go back to Romans 8. But what caused creation to fall? Us. We're in charge of this. God creates everything. He puts man there and he says, be fruitful, multiply, govern the earth. Your authority. So I'm going to govern you and you're going to govern it, but you're in my image and you're created in this spin and you're included in the spin of Father, Son, and Spirit now. So the decisions you make and the image that you bear, they're going to look at you and they're going to see me in all of it. But you're going to govern it. So Jesus gave us back the authority, and now creation is saying, as soon as they realize that they've been given this authority 2,000 years ago, we're coming free too. Uh, um, So uh, unbelievable stuff. So what Paul is saying, though, here, is that before there was a creation, before there was even a fall, he predetermined you in him. And not because he had to, but in love or preference, because he desired to. 
So before the fall, before creation, before all this stuff, you existed in Father, Son, and Spirit. Your identity solidified before there was ever a breath from Adam. So when Adam fell, this is when the delusion came in before he fell. The reason he fell. The delusion came in that he was something other than what God told him he was. Let us make man in our image. Enemy comes in. If you eat this fruit, you'll be in their image. In other words, you're not in the image now, but if you eat this fruit, you'll be in the image. When they were created out of the exact image. That's the lie. So the fall was buying in to the lie that we are not what we are. Jesus came to tell us and show us who we are. Who are we? In the image of I am. Okay? So that we could now turn around to creation and every other person in our society that still believes they're not what they are in Christ and every other person in society and say, I am who I am and you are who you are too. Creation, you are who you are too. And everything starts swirling in predetermined identity, original identity. Huge, this is huge stuff. Okay. You and I being in Christ is not the result of our best efforts or decisions or because we work to be in it. Us being in Christ is the result of God's predetermined I amness found in you and I. That's why you can even do the sinner's prayer thing and be saved. Repeat after a guy and you're saved? Repeat after a lady and you're saved? And I totally agree with that aspect of it because there's nothing you got to do. All you got to do is say yes. So this is what he said. He's, our salvation is not by our best efforts or by what we've done. And this reiterated in Hebrews when it says that if it had been out of our best efforts, we would have taken the responsibility and the praise for our salvation. That's the old law. Instead, he came so that you could not achieve it by your works ever, your best works, so that you can never say, I did this on my own so that you could always be to the glory of God through everything that you are in your previous, original, predetermined, but now recovered identity. Okay, so this is what 1 Peter 20 says. 120, 1 Peter 120. I know there's not a 1 Peter 20. 1 Peter 120. He, Jesus, check this out. You ready? Jesus was chosen and destined for this, for what? To be sacrificed, resurrection, crucifixion, the whole thing. He was destined for this before, and your Bibles say, the foundations of the earth. Guess what that word is? Catabola. Same word. So Jesus was chosen and destined for this to be sacrificed before the fall. What? I thought Jesus was a response to the fall. But Peter says this. Revelation, John says this in Revelation, that he was the lamb crucified from the foundations of the earth. Peter says Jesus was chosen and destined for that before both the foundation of the earth and before there was ever even a fall. Oh, well, I thought the cross was a response to the fall. Yes. But because you were, listen, because you were chosen in him before there was ever a fall, 
in order to do that, God also had to concoct a plan. And I hate that language, but it's the best one I can come up with. He had to have a plan in place that even if we messed this up, he would recover our identity for us. And so anytime we think that we're just, a, we're just a nuisance to God, that he just had to do something for, nope, he didn't. He said, you're in my image, here's this tree, here's this tree, and you get to pick. I mean, that's about as good as you can do. You know what I'm saying? But no, he so desired you that he said, here's this tree, here's this tree, but even if you choose the wrong tree, I'm still going to redeem you. What? No greater love than this, right? So the, so the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection is a recovery of what was determined before you and I were ever born and before there was ever even a fall to respond to. It's not merely a new way to accomplish the law. It is a recovery of I am. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a, you could say, was an I'm not tree. A lot of scholars use this language throughout the New Testament. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you could say, is an I am not tree. Because what does the enemy say? If you eat this, you'll be what you already are. So they bought into a lie of what they were not, thinking that if they did this, they would be something that they already were. Okay? The law exposed the I am not identity because remember, it exposed sin. What is sin? Anybody remember this? Hamartia. Does anybody remember what Hamartia means? Sin. It does mean miss the mark. It comes from the words ha, which means without, and meros, which means portion or form, without form. So sin, hamartia, means without form. It's not merely something that you do. It's even deeper. It's the identity that produced what you did. Okay? So when John says, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin. It's not sins in the Greek. It's sin, singular. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is he saying? Here's the Lamb of God that's going to become the broken identity so that he can shift the broken identity, which causes all the other sins in the world. Okay? So you and I, let me, for example, like when, when you were quote-unquote lost, think about how crazy you were. So, I mean, some of you, no, I'm just kidding. But, th- but think about this. Like when, when before Jesus found you and took hold of you and you said yes, before that, think about how crazy you were. I was crazy. And I didn't, even, I didn't go party. I didn't go do any of that stuff. I was never allowed. I had great parents. I was never allowed to do that stuff. So I never did that. However, there were mindsets that I had about myself that I'm still to this day tasting the effect of. But, but some, I mean, some of you have all this stuff and somehow you got saved and all of a sudden your decisions start be different, start to be different. Not all of them, but a lot of them, hopefully. But you know what I'm saying? What happened? It was the sin that produced the sins finally being dealt with. And when you deal with the roots, 100% of the time, the fruit will always be affected. So he didn't come to pick off all the fruit off the tree. He came to change the root system. Jesus did not become the fruit. Jesus became the roots so that when he died and was resurrected, the whole tree could be resurrected with it. Jesus became sin, he he became I am not, so that we would become the righteousness of God. Now, Jesus became our identity without form, sin. 
so that we could become righteous again. What does righteous mean? It comes from the word right. Actually, I was at the uh, camp this week, um, Three Crosses down in Norway, and uh, I think this was Wednesday, and the lady that was leading it, um, before I got up there and shared, was talking about righteousness with these kids. And, uh, of course, you know, I think this is something all of us knew, but just something about when she said it, you know, it just hits you different when somebody says something that you already know. And, um, but she said something about righteous. She was a, she's, she's an English teacher. She was like, you know, what's the root word for righteous? Right. And I was like, she just explained something that scholars have spent pages and pages and pages of works trying to describe that wasn't that good. You know what I'm saying? So, like, what is righteous? You're right again. You know what I'm saying? So he became what you were not so that you could become what he is. And if we're being honest, what you actually always were. Because you were not made in the image of the world. You were made in the image of God. No matter how distorted that's become because we put our hands on it, that's a whole other thing. Either way, your origin did not come from sin or the earth. Your origin came from God. That's what David says in Psalm. He says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The devil didn't knit you together. He did. You originated in his image. Therefore, when you thought you lost you, defender, he knows exactly where you left you because he's the one that knit you together in the first place. So this is why our culture, the, 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 the Christian you know, church today, is spending so much time arguing with the culture saying this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Y'all shouldn't say this and you should say this and you shouldn't be like this. And we spend so much time arguing to the culture rather than telling the culture you can be like me because you're actually just like me. And it's not in a pride. It's not saying like me. I'm saying like I know who I am. Let me say it like this. I'm learning who I am and we're learning who we are. And if that doesn't translate into giving other people permission to know who they are, we have completely missed evangelism. We, it is not evangelism if we're telling people how to act and at no point giving them permission to be who they actually are. Let me say this one more time because they are falling asleep on me. That's all good. Let me say it one more time. It is not evangelism for you to tell people how to act and at no point tell them who they are. It's not evangelism. That's religion. That's inviting them into a club. You pay your dues and you do this and you're in. You know what I'm saying? And if that's what we want to do, y'all, y'all can do it. You can't do it here, you can do, you know, but you can do it. You know what I'm saying? However, if we're wanting to see his kingdom come, it will not ever come by way of us fixing how people do things. Never. That's why it does not matter what news station you watch. It doesn't matter what you post on social media. And let me help you. It doesn't matter what you think about vaccines. Or fill in the blank, whatever, I mean, whatever, any other polarizing, you know, thing. Like, that, that don't mean squat. You know what does mean squat? If we look like a rear end telling people what they should be doing, and instead of telling them who they are, instead telling them who they are not, which, by the way, John says, is the darkness. And if we're living in that, we're not just living in a dark place, we're living a lie. And now we're letting the lie spread from us to everybody else. And then we wonder why people are running from it. They're not running from the church. They're running from the lie. They may not know they're running from the lie, but everything in their guts say, I was designed for light. 
So I'm not going to go somewhere that says it's light and is actually dark. So I'm going to keep running until I find somebody with light. And that's why to evangelize, you've got to be the city set on an eye, and we have to be the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden so that as somebody is running from the darkness, they see the city set on a hill and say, that's what I was made for. That doesn't mean we have to agree. In fact, it means we can disagree on a ton of different things and still be friends. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, seriously, in our culture today, if you disagree with people, it is cut. We could show the world what it looks like to be completely unified and disagree on a lot of different things. Just like I said earlier, listen, like, like I, I, one of the things I regret saying today is the whole Christian thing. Because I know people are going to take that and miss the whole sermon. So y'all forget I ever said that, okay? But, it was just part of the sermon. But, you can disagree, like for example, you can believe the rapture is coming tomorrow. You can believe that with everything in your guts. You can, you can preach it. You can believe it. You can do the whole thing. I don't. I believe if Jesus is coming back in the morning, it sure ain't to get us out. If anything, it's to seat us even deeper. That's what, I mean, that's what he said in Matthew. It'll be as in the days of Noah. Noah didn't leave the earth. Right? I mean, right? Hello? That's what Jesus said. Just quoting Jesus. But... You don't have to agree with that. And guess what? You can still be a part of this church. You can still be a part of this family. And we can still do life together. That's what, but that's just an example. You know what I'm saying? That your salvation does not hinge on what you believe about the rapture. It really doesn't. If he comes back tomorrow, guess who's going to be on the first load? Me and all y'all. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? But, but this, this, is, this is huge stuff. So we have got to get to the place where we really start to believe who we are in him. And not just who we are because of our actions, but, but who we were before we ever took a breath that could produce an action. He determined who we were before our actions were ever an issue. And it is, it is prideful to believe that your actions can shift something that was determined before your actions ever came to be. Let me ask you this. In, Matt, you can come up here. In what ways have you lived and made decisions out of the lies of what you are not? In what ways have you and I both, have we lived and made decisions out of the lies of what we are not? The Lord, I believe, is currently exposing, this is my last notes, is exposing those lies to the light to burn them up and produce light within those places. This is what Ephesians 5 says, 13. Whatever the revelation light exposes, it will also correct, and everything that reveals truth is light to the soul. Okay? So the goal is, God, to expose every bit of obscurity within us. Any place within us that we have believed that we are not, Here's what Yahweh's doing, exposing it to the light of who you are. Every lie you believe, he's going to expose and say, nope, that's not true, but this is truth. Let me speak. I'm, I'm going through this right now. Right now. Going into the summer, I believed I was in the healthiest place, and I was, in the healthiest place spiritually I had ever been in going into the summer. And then when the Lord gives that word about Exodus, you know what he starts doing? bringing all the lies about what I believe about myself right up to the surface. And that has been tough. 
I'm just being, I'm just being honest with you. It has been the toughest summer of my life spiritually. Church is doing great, but spiritually, it has been the toughest summer of my life. And I'm not talking about temptation. I'm talking about the lies. I'm talking about the doubt. I'm talking about the insecurities. I'm talking about feeling like there is no way. Literally, when the Lord gives us some of these words, my first thought and my first reaction, which he's dealing with is, there is no way I should be the one leading this. No way. Not a chance. So the Lord is making me face that lie every moment of every day until so much light exposes, is exposed to it that it turns to truth. There's no way. With my daughter, she's getting older. And lately, because she's getting older, I've like been like, man, am I, like, am I doing this right? Is she going to be good? Is she solid? Could I be being a better dad? I mean, like just the whole thing and all of that, like I said, is from the place that when I grew up, I wasn't partying, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing all that stuff. But for some reason, I doubted who I was my whole life. I just have. I felt like I was always against the world when I really wasn't. I mean, that's my story is I feel like I'm always fighting a battle that actually I'm, nobody's fighting against me. When I played football, I thought I was earning a starting job. The job was mine. There wasn't that many players on the team. You know what I'm saying? But it was just like, I, it's just my whole life that's been it. And in this, leading this, this exposes you. I don't, we don't share this a lot. We have over, on just the app, we've had over 150,000 this year impressions in our app. That means people who have engaged our church from all over the world, 150,000. There's been over a million minutes of messages listened to this year in one in the past year. And I don't say that. I, the reason I'm saying that is because I have felt naked and exposed in all of this because what I expected when we started this church was I expected a handful, and locally that's what we got, a handful a family that we were just going to grow and grow and grow together. And then we got closer to COVID and we did the live stream thing and we started all that. And, and since then, the Lord has used this to reach people that don't have something like this to tell them this is who you could be. Not me, but, but this. This is who you could be. Okay? And because of that, this summer has just, I have felt like there is not a chance in the world I should be here doing this. And the Lord is day in and day out. Nope. You're there because I want you to be there. You know what I'm saying? But that, and that's just for me. That's just my personal story. But like for a lot of us, I, I feel like that's probably been the case. It's like the Lord has been exposing lies that you have believed about yourself or lies that you have started to live in or lived in for your whole life. And he's exposed them to the light. And do you know what has happened? Israelites standing right on the promised land right on the cusp, but they look in and see the giants and they say, I'd much rather go right back to living with the lies than to go through the process of being free from the lies. That's me. I'm like, Lord, I'd rather go back to us having 10 people, no live stream and nobody giving a crap what's going on around here. Sorry for saying that. You know what I'm saying? I, I'd rather go back into that because it'd be much easier for us to face that than for me to face all the stuff that I have to face in order to leave something like this that says your kingdom is coming and your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Way easier. However, if we're not careful, 
will start to slide back into that because it is easier. And then the next generation that was designed to be raised on this level of glory will have to start on this level of glory. And it's still a level of glory, but it won't be as high as this level of glory is. And my daughter and your kids that you don't have yet, but you will, and our grandkids and our great-grandkids, all of them, all of them are, are begging from in Christ, begging for us to say yes. Our legacy, our legacy is begging and standing on tiptoes saying, I know it would be easier for you to go to that, but if you would stand right here and watch the Lord take care of all your enemies on your behalf and all of your lies on your behalf and all of your obscurity and darkness on your behalf, if you'll stand here and watch him do that, your legacy is going to be raised up in what it looks like to be in a your kingdom come, your will be done environment. Like, what does it mean if our kids get this and they don't have to sit around and talk about people being disciplined? You know what I'm saying? That's a real thing today for us because not a lot of people are disciplined. Nobody's committed to anything. But what does it mean for our kids to come up and they're not talking about how we need to be disciplined, how we need to tithe? They're so solidified in what we have allowed the Lord to shift in us that now they're saying, we've got America, what do we do next? You know what I'm saying? There's angels and seraphim flying around the room. What if we could get him to fly around the room? Like, you know, that's what I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming, they're going to be in worship, and all of a sudden, heavenly host, and Yahweh himself is going to start taking the mic and the instruments and start joining in. Well, brother, brother, I don't know about that. You don't have to know about that. I don't care. But that's what we're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is way more than us getting free from our fears. It starts there. It starts there. But this is way more than us having good church services, people falling out in the spirit and speaking in five languages. That stuff is awesome. But that stuff was meant to transition us into the complete and full knowledge of who God is. Love. 1 John 1, 5. He says, this message, and I'm done. This message is the message we received. He's pure light. You'll never find a trace of darkness in him. I shared this this week, and Angela shared something awesome in our group chat about this. But I'm, I'm, this I'm going to wrap up. When it says God is pure light, in the time, you know, they didn't, in the New Testament, they didn't have electricity. Everybody know that? Like they didn't have electricity in the 80, 90 or whatever. So because of that, in order to produce light, something had to burn. Fire produced light, not electricity. So when John is writing, God is pure light. You'll never find a trace of darkness in him. That connects directly with the revelation of our God as an all-consuming Fire. Consuming what? Every trace of darkness. (laughs) What is John? God is pure light. And they, when as soon as anybody, when they received this letter, read that, immediately, I believe, immediately their mind would have gone to, our God is an all-consuming fire. And this quote, and I want to quote it correctly, this quote, says, I forget the guy's name. I can't look it up right now. Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel 
had this quote. I don't know if this guy, I don't know what this guy state is. I just saw this quote in a book this week. But it says, whatever is to produce light must endure the burning. Whatever is to produce light must endure the burning. What does that mean? Anything that is designed to produce light must first go through the process of burning. What happens in burning? Everything dies. So for them to go to Egypt, to Canaan, there had to be a wilderness of burning where everything from Egypt died. And for that generation, it meant they literally had to die for Egypt to die. That wasn't how it's supposed to be. And I don't want it to be like that for us. I don't want us to be the generation that dies and with us dies Adam. I want us to be the generation that will sit in the fire until every trace of darkness is consumed in the fire so that we begin to produce the light we were designed to produce. People ask all the time, why is it taking Jesus 2,000 plus years to return? And my answer has always been, it's because we have never produced the light that we were supposed to produce that would send him into such a move of emotion and love that he said, I've got to go be with them. Because what is John? He says he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. Pure what? Pure from every trace of darkness. What does that mean? That we're going to start doing all of our efforts so that we don't produce darkness? No, 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 no. What he's saying is, is he's coming back for a bride that is one million percent convinced that you were chosen before anything affected it in the earth. Do you, I mean, like, do you believe that? I'm asking you this. I don't fully yet. I'm on the journey with y'all. But, like, do we believe that despite everything we've done in our lives before, and he knew it. Psalm also says, David says, that every day of our lives was written in his book before one of them came to be. He knew exactly what you were going to do, and yet you were chosen before one of them came to be. So, so why... Why do we believe, why do we believe that God is, is, is angry and hard to impress and hard to work by, but because of Jesus, we got a little bit more energy and a little bit more stamina and maybe we'll make it by the skin of our teeth. Why, why do we believe that? Let me ask you a deeper question. Like, why are you here? Here. It's, it's not, I said this, it's not because somebody invited, somebody might have invited you, somebody might have brought you, you might be family, you might be whatever, but you're not, you're not here because somebody invited you. You're not here because of your relationship. You're not here because of anything. You know why you're here? You're here because Yahweh found you and said, I've got to get you in, an, and me too, I've got to get you in an environment where I can tell you what I really think. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. And if you believe that the only reason you're here is to find a good life-giving church, you're going to be very disappointed. This is a good life-giving church, but more accurately, this is a good light-giving church. And in order to get to the light, there's got to be a burning. And that's where most people bail out. We keep talking about light, but when things start to burn, a lot of people bail out because it's easier to bail out than it is to go through the process of producing light. That's why you're here. People don't listen to this because I'm a good speaker. I'm not. I'm not saying that to like push myself down. But like I find great joy in that. Nobody listens to this because I'm a good speaker or because I do great messages. And they sure don't listen to it because I do short messages. 
But you know why? You know, the, the one reason I believe people listen to this is because when they press play, there's a frequency that starts to enter their guts that says, this is what I was made for. That's why I believe. There's no other reason why anybody would listen to this because we've got 20 people in Columbia, South Carolina. We're the smallest church in the city. Well, maybe, one of. No, there's no reason for anybody to listen to this. No reason for anybody to watch this. Except the frequency. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And here's what I want to do today. We're just going to, as we pray, I'm going to pray over you. But as I am praying over you, I want you to ask yourself, what lies have you lived and made decisions out of? Particularly the lies of what you're not. What have you said no to because you don't believe you're qualified for it? What have you said yes to because you didn't believe you were qualified for better? Let's pray together. Lord, Yahweh, I I pray. This is completely orthodox, but unorthodox in our day and age. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, number one, would you begin to just whisper this stuff to people throughout the week, right now, just even right now, would you begin to whisper and solidify some of the stuff in us? Would you begin to solidify in us that we were not made for mere religion, that we were made for something way greater than religion, which is covenant, which is son and daughtership, which is a spin in the Trinity, which is I am. I am that I am. So if we're in your image, which we are, and we are in Christ, which we are, then there is no trace of us ever, ever, that has the legality to believe what we are not. Because we exist in the one that there is not a shred of what we are not that is found within. And so, Lord, I pray that this would just become the light and the love that you've been showing us and teaching us and revealing in us. I pray that this would become the new, quote, unquote, movement in America. Not a great, not a great church, not a great service, and not a great speaker. Lord, help us. But I pray that the light would become the movement and that your light would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that we would actually be a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. Lord, we love you and honor you in this place. Lord, our salvation, I thank you for, because our salvation was so much more than us being given a rule book and repeating something. Our salvation was our identity being returned to us. And Lord, forgive us for ever making salvation a part of what we do to market and sell our brand. No, what what we're doing is covenant and marriage. We're the bride of Christ. So I thank you, Lord, that you didn't just tolerate me, but you said yes to for better or for worse. We didn't just say yes to it. You did.
So I thank you for that and honor you for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This just hit, like, when, when, when I said the marriage thing earlier about us being in Christ, saying yes to that covenant, like, he did the same thing for us, for better or worse, for rich or poor, right? In plenty and in lack, he said yes. Unbelievable.